From GreenBiz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. I'm Joel McCower. And we're being clear, look, there are a number of sustainability issues that really impact reputational risk. And being clear that that's a reputational risk, which also, frankly, can have real financial risk, as we all know. Uh, but then there are maybe others that really are operational risk. There might be market risk. There might be credit risk. Audrey Troy is Morgan Stanley's Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Sustainability Officer. She and I sat down at the GreenBiz19 conference in Phoenix, Arizona, to talk about the growing role that green finance is playing in the field of sustainability. Let's listen in. Oh, hey, how are you? Great to see you. We've been wanting to have you here for a long time, so it's great to finally make that happen. Oh, it's great to be start, here. Thank start you. off with an assertion that ESG is the new SRI. And what I mean by that is that um, the, the space that environmental, social, and governance issues has taken uh, is, is center stages is, is the central conversation in the way that socially responsible investing was a number of years ago. And not to diss SRI, it's still an important part of this. But it feels like, uh, again, another sea change that ESG has kind of out of nowhere just found itself smack dab in the middle of Wall Street. Is that how you see it? You're in the middle, you were in the middle of Wall Street metaphorically. I know you're midtown, but what, what are you seeing in this now? Has this changed? Um, yeah, I think what we're seeing really more than anything else is, um, you know, is the momentum shift that we really have entered sort of the hockey stick phase of the movement. Uh, I think there's a couple important things, though, to, to distinctions to make. Right? One is that um, I think ESG really has become sort of the dominant term that everyone's talking about now. And again, just to level set, you know, we're we're seeing now that um, if you look at all assets under professional management in the United States that some sort of ESG mandate to them, it now applies to uh, one out of every four dollars. So we really are now seeing 25% of the market saying they want some sort of ESG. So that's, one, that's, that is a sea change. One out of every four dollars that's invested in uh, North America and so that's globally? The, that's, the, that's the US numbers, those are the most recent numbers. Uh, so it's about 12 trillion dollars in the US. Um, globally, it's more than $23 trillion. And this is money that's screened in some way for environmental social So government. it runs the gamut. It could be that it's screened for not including negatives that people don't want in their portfolio, whatever that might be for you or your institution. Uh, it could be looking for general to high quality ESG criteria all the way on over to impact and true impact investing where people are really trying to drive for strong um, environmental social outcomes alongside of financial returns. You've said that, that, that today's ESG is not your mother's SRI. Explain that. Well, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons um, that I would say it's not is because um, the SRI, I think, uh, at least from a sort of cultural vocabulary perspective, it carries that connotation of if it's socially responsible, you're doing it out of this sense of virtue and that you are probably willing to, um, to accept a discount of, you know, on return. I'm not saying that that's what the SRI movement meant, but I'm saying that that's what for the mainstream market who weren't SRI investors, that's how they kind of successfully sort of said, well, that's, that's maybe for somebody else. It's for religious institutions, it's for values-driven investors, but they're not really investors first. 
first, they're socially responsible first. ESG, I think one of the reasons that it's been able to accelerate so much in even just really the last two, three, four years, where it's gone from one out of every nine to one out of every six to one out of every five to one out of every four dollars, um, is because right now ESG, the way we're talking about it really is, it's, it's not just that it's investing in a way that is socially responsible, it's recognizing that thinking about the environment and the effects the company has on the environment, thinking about social issues and the effect that a company has on it, is actually part of being financially responsible and being a good steward. And so you're seeing much more of really focusing on understanding that these can actually be financial drivers. And when you get that, you can start to embrace a, a whole um, different way of talking about ESG that may have SRI as a component of it, but that it's also saying, these things actually, if you, if you do it right, and that, those are some very important words, yeah. if you do it right, um, that you can really align financial value, risk reduction, and alignment with values. Well, that begs the obvious question, what is right? How do, what does that even mean? Well, I think it means a couple of things, right? So um, I think right now, one of the biggest things is making sure that it's really done in, in a rigorous way. Um, you know, what we've seen is, look, not just financial markets, all markets at the end of the day are responsive to customer demand, right? And so when you suddenly see this huge surge in demand, I mean, as really evidenced by this incredible room, right? I think last year you were 40% less than this and every year it seems to grow exponentially. When you see this kind of customer demand, you actually have a rush of suppliers saying, oh, if there are all these buyers, I better like put some product out there because I want you to buy my product, not somebody else's product. And so I think what we're seeing right now is that I, I think there's going to be a period of sort of a, a, a sorting of quality over the next few years where um, it's, in, you know, it's incredibly important for investors to think about, is this asset manager or this fund manager, are they really thinking thoughtfully about ESG along the lines of what I consider important? Um, I, the investor, not me, um, and doing that in a rigorous way, or are they saying, look, here's a strategy they always run. Um, you seem to want ESG, so I'm going to grab something that looks like ESG data, slap it into the formula, see if anything falls out, and, and then say that's my new ESG product, right? So we need to be careful about, you know, really saying how are you looking at environmental issues as a value driver? How are you looking at that? And then on the other side, also about impact, right? We, so we, we want to make sure that there, there's two things we have to really try to manage for. One is that if an investor comes to sustainability and sustainable investing and has kind of accepted the notion that it's possible to maximize financial return and maximize outcome and the two actually may potentially be in a mutual reinforcing, you want to make sure that's a, a good performing portfolio. At the same time, if they've come to that because they care deeply about climate change or poverty or whatever their issue is, that has to also be a strategy that is going to meaningfully deliver on that impact. And so we have to be really rigorous about thinking about what are the investors' goals, what are the issues that are most important to them, and what's the way to really do it in a deep, thoughtful, analytical, and meaningful and like strategic way. When you talked about slapping some ESG data up there, I actually there's a number of providers in the room and I could actually feel them wince from, from all the way up here. Um, it's, it's been axiomatic in, in sustainability circles, at least for a long time, that, that uh, analysts uh, that, and, and, you know, don't really care about sustainability. It doesn't come up in earnings calls. It doesn't come up that, that sustainability executives aren't invited to, you know, with, with uh, investor relations to, to visit uh, to meet with companies in any way, shape, or form. Um, is that changing? Is, it, it feels like that, that has to change in order for this, what we're talking about, to really become real. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I think it is changing, um, and there's also a perception shift. So just to get the two things separately, one is, look, I know that you know we partner very closely with our investor relations teams, and we get a lot of inquiries from our own investors about sustainability and ESG factors, and that is certainly being mirrored widely across the you know across the industry, where more and more investors. And look, when you've got Standard and Poor's and Fitch and Moody's all saying that they are actually now integrating ESG into how they're doing credit ratings, that is definitely going to be more on the minds of both investor relations executives and also chief financial officers. Um, where I think that um, sometimes there's, there's, um, there's actually more interest than people may think there is, is that you know, people, on an, especially on an analyst call, don't usually say, I now have a sustainability question I would like to ask. right? But they might ask, something about you know, your environmental emissions. They might ask something about you know, your turnover right. rate. They yeah. might, exactly. And um, increasingly, you know, we're, we're really uh, understanding that those are sustainability issues, right? Retention, governance, um, environmental issues, those really are part of sustainability. So we have a room full of, of corporate sustainability professionals. What do they need to know to be more successful in that exact conversation? Um, you know, I think it's really more looking at sustainability as a driver of value, right? Because I think that as we go through this, you know, this sort of cultural and sort of social shift that we're all in right now, I think the biggest mind shift is, um, is, is kind of that migration of sustainability as one of those things over here that, you know, that you had in sort of the pretty box, the sort of the Vaseline filters with the children in the playground and the trees and the hands holding the, you know, tree with the money coming off of the leaves, right? There's, there's all those stock photos that we all have and that I say we can never use, um, you know, and really pulling it over to how does it drive value. And when, this, you know, when the chief sustainability officer is able to be having more conversations about where is, you know, where is this a, a conversation that is relevant for the chief risk officer, for the chief financial officer, and ultimately for, for driving revenues, that's the kind of thing. And, and, and it takes a while. And it really needs to, to build the business case. Um, you know, I, I know there, was, there have been some studies, I think, that um, it's a number of different uh, folks have done together. And I'll, I will get the numbers exactly wrong, but notionally right. Something like 95% of executives will say sustainability is an important strategic consideration. Right. Fewer than 60% of them have anything even remotely labeled a sustainability strategy. And fewer than, I think, you know, I think it's about 10%, maybe 12% have um, actually a business case around it. And, you know, and then around you know, 10 or fewer percent actually report on material sustainability drivers. So there still is this huge gap between so, recognition and delivery. So we talk about you know, a small percent actually having business case around it. What, 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 what are you looking for there? What, what needs to happen? Um, well, you know, I think it, it really needs to, it needs to be reconciling up what are the sustainability issues that, um, that really do matter to your business. So what we've done at Morgan Stanley, for example, is in our research division, um, you know, issuing overweight, you know, hold underweight recommendations on stocks, um, we don't have a, a rating on your stock based on financials and then a separate sustainability rating, right? We're actually saying, if you're a chemical company and you're a transportation company and you're a financial services company and you're a software company, each of your industries have different things that matter um, for your business. And so, for, you know, and so we've actually gone through and said, what are the dozen or you know, one dozen to two dozen, not 574, but maybe the dozen or so sustainability issues that aren't actually today on the balance sheet, but probably should be. Can you and give so, an example? Yeah, 
to look. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a manufacturing company and you're not actually looking at water usage, wastewater disposal, effluents, other things, as part of the balance sheet, or if you're a services, professional services firm and you're not actually looking at the true cost of, um, of retention and churn, if you, for example, we know that, um, well, you know, we, we, we've seen time and time again the companies that start to excel at diversity and inclusion and supportive workplaces end up having less turnover, which means they have less churn, which means they have fewer recruiting costs, which means ultimately their bottom line is better. So if you actually identify that dozen or so factors that are really, truly material for your industry, what we've seen is, and you then integrate that into the financial valuation, we've seen our analysts actually change calls both up and down as a result of that. So talk me through how the sustainability professional in a company makes that happen? You know, I think it, it, um, it, it really just starts with understanding the business and thinking about what are those environmental or people factors that really determine, you know, what's excellent about your business, right? And so, again, like, if, and then figuring out, you know, if we, if we move the dial on a certain set of policies or actions, how could that impact? So I, I, let me restate the question, because I think most, or a large percentage of people uh, in, in this audience know, they already know that. I think it's how do you bring that to make sure it's integrated into the investor relation conversation and, made, and, and, and actually made part of valuation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's uh, where the challenge is and maybe some of the blockages. Well, so, um, no, look, I, well, maybe why don't I give you an example of maybe one, one case, you know, and this is a couple years old, so this is not advice that you should go out and trade on, and I'm not giving you any, any stock advice here, but um, any, an example of um, some of the calls that we saw our analysts change and sort of why and how that materialized, right? One up and one down. So in one case, there was a, um, uh, an analyst in a sort of a heavy industrial sector, and it was always known that sort of one of the companies that this analyst covered didn't do the best job on environmental stewardship and social stewardship. But again, when you're sitting there looking at a 13-week earnings call and a 12-month sort of call, it didn't really ever seem totally material. When they looked, uh, when they kind of went back in, in partnership with the sustainability team in research to say what, what could really actually drive the business, they were saying, you know, there's always been this issue around water usage of this company using a lot of water from this local market not really sharing that well with the local community, and it never had been sort of really that material in any one quarter. But they saw that the cumulative effect was that it was very likely that within a short period of time, like within that next 12 months, the government, the local government might actually order them to build, to do a feasibility study for a desalination plant for water purification, which meant that there could suddenly be an unanticipated capex of a half a billion to a billion dollars, right? So suddenly, water usage, yeah. is a material risk. And at the same time, the community engagement hadn't been terrific, which again, hadn't seemed material until you realize that it's the local community members who do things like give you permits to open new sites. And when the permits were coming ever so slower each time, it meant that their output was actually gonna potentially be down up to 20%. Yeah. So you can say it's a water issue and it's a social issue, or you can say it's unanticipated capex and reduced volume and something that led to a downgrade. On the other hand, um, there was another company that had always done a great, different, in, different industry, had always done a great job on women's empowerment and community engagement and girls programs, and everyone thought that's lovely, and they got this sort of pat on the back. 
until you went back and you looked at it and you saw that over the years that track record and reputation of um, of girls' education and empowerment, of in inclusive workforce procedures and whatnot, led to them having lower churn rates, yeah. higher retention rates, higher productivity, and actually led to a financial upgrade. Well, that gets to another question I want to get to, to Heather in a second. But, but we had, a, as you know, Audrey, we had this uh, Greenfin Summit this morning, uh, 100 people, including, I think, someone from, your, from Morgan was there. And we had CalPERS and CalSTRS and State Street, and this really great group of both on the investor side and, and the corporate side. And one of the things that sort of astounded me is when we went around and, and had answered a bunch of questions as groups and reported out is that the, so much of the, of the takeaways were about communications, about definitions, about shared understanding. Um, in between the investor side and the, and the sustainability side, and even just terms that like risk, what is, how do we define that? And it turns out that don't necessarily define that the same way, probably sustainability even. So what have you learned about uh, you know, sh sort of shared language and, and communication that can be more, help, help sustainability executives be more effective? Um, no, that's, that's a great point, because I do think that so often we're sort of talking past each other. Um, you know, I think it really, I, I think about it a little bit like, you know, when you're an exchange student in a foreign country, right? it's, and it's about sort of figuring out that local parlance and the accent and the right way to, you know, be understood is, I think that just the, the, the more that we as sustainability leaders are really adopting sort of a financial um, and, a, and a true sort of business driver vocabulary. And we're not talking about, and we're being clear, look, there are a number of sustainability issues that really impact reputational risk. And being clear that that's a reputational risk, which also, frankly, can have real financial risk, as we all know. Um, but then there are maybe others that really are operational risk. There might be market risk. There might be credit risk. And starting to talk about those things pretty specifically. Um, the other thing is um, sort of starting to make um, what feels like large cultural anthropological issues make them feel real from a customer perspective, right? So, you know, for, for us on the wealth management side, I think one of the ways that we've managed to sort of focus the mind of our business uh, on sustainability as a business opportunity not just sort of a reputational issue is, um, you know, is really looking, obviously, first, the, the one out of four hugely helps, right? Every time I talk to a wealth manager, I say, okay, raise your hand if you want to cap your market potential at 75% of all of your clients' money, right? And shockingly, no one raises their hands. So it's like, okay, so if you want that last 25%, here's what you have to be get smart about, um, you know, but the, the other issue is, um, you know, and when we look at, um, at the future, right? And we know that there's, depending on which study you like to look at, you know, 25, 30, 40 trillion dollars worth of wealth that is gonna change hands over the next decade or so from largely male boomers to basically to, to women and then to millennials. And when you then put that against the, the chart of um, interest in sustainable investing, we see that today uh, men are about 67% say they're interested in it. Um, about uh, the first time we did it, it was about 66% men, 75% women, 84% millennials. Two, two years later when we did it, it was 67% men, 84% women, and 86% millennials. When you start realizing that millennials are now the largest cohort in the workforce, that they are entering the C-suites and the management ranks, they will be running the future, you know, the future 50, maybe not, they're not running necessarily the Fortune 500 today, but they will be managing companies of the future. Like, 
in what other universe would a CEO or a chief revenue officer say, you're showing me demand curves that go like this, you're showing me curves of where the future demographics of my customers are going, and I have no interest in integrating that into my business plan? Yeah. Well, I hope it, it continues to, uh, to, to, to actually get that, because it seems like it's, it's, it's slow moving, even though it seems to be taking off a little bit accelerating. But anyway, let's, let's get to a, a quick question from Heather. Can you hear me this time? Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. The, yeah, I, I, sort of building on where you've been, uh, much of your comments have been related to reducing risk, you know, and using these issues to making sure that in the company, that in the future, the company will be around. And to your point, um, what about opportunity, right? How can you use these issues um, as, as levers for change and innovation and so forth? Um, so the question was, is it right now just really that the conversation needs to be at, about risk, about climate risk, and that's where we're going to make an impact right now? Or are you, are you seeing examples of, of the, the counter-argument, which is to say, you know, let's, let's go into the boardroom, let's talk about how this can be a lever for differentiation for innovation. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, no, it's absolutely both sides of the coin. And actually, I usually spend more time, frankly, talking about the sort of the opportunity side. Um, and I think a lot of it depends on, you know, sort of where you and your company are on the journey. Um, we've found that, you know, uh, again, at different times, at sort of different stages of the journey and also with different um, counterparts, you may have more traction with one or the other. I think that often the sort of risk avoidance is where people are sort of most likely to first believe it. They can see that if something doesn't go boom in the night that reduces, you know, a liability, they sort of get that. But I think, to, you know, to the innovation point, that's absolutely where, um, and I think that's actually a big part of why we've seen a lot of the, the dollars move, is that people are seeing that it's not just about avoiding negative, that there are actually um, very significant um, growth opportunities. And again, I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist or a crystal ball kind of, you know, clairvoyant to talk about the opportunities. You just look at, again, just pretend that we aren't talking about sustainability and just look at supply and demand curves. Yeah. Population moving towards at least 9.7 billion. The associated increases that, that means in not only demand for food, energy, and water, but also affordable quality housing, affordable quality healthcare, affordable quality education, um, and, and all of those things are massive growth opportunities, right, that, that could collectively be, you know, very significant part of global GDP. And that is a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs and allocators of capital to say, I want to be in the, you know, the fast-growing opportunity for quality, green, um, affordable housing in places like India, where you've got these exploding population trends and huge needs. So I think the opportunity set is, is definitely one of the big pulls um, yeah. for, for, um, for investments. Well, I heard the word opportunity about eight times in that answer, and I think that really is the driver that the more we can uh, equate sustainability with opportunity in the investment world, I think the, the faster and, and the further we can go in this community. Uh, we're at a time, not out of questions by any shot, but a great conversation. Please join great. me in thanking Thanks Audrey so Choi. Thanks so much, everyone. You've been listening to Audrey Choi discuss the importance of prioritizing and investing in environmental, social, and governance issues at the Green Biz 19 conference in Phoenix, Arizona. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash centerstage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, our weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>